Welcome to the Virginia Economic Review podcast. This is Stephen Moray, president of the Virginia Economic Development Partnership for VDP. Today, I'm delighted to have on the podcast three of the top site selection consultants in the country who, among other things, are experts in how companies approach corporate headquarters location decisions. Joining us today are Greg Burkhart, Managing Director and Site Selection and Incentives Advisory Leader at Duff & Phelps, Jeanette Goldsmith, who's Vice President at Strategic Development Group, and finally Chris Shastock, Senior Vice President of the Advisory and Transaction Services Practice at CBRE. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. It's a very interesting time for uh, corporate real estate decisions in the country as we're recording this in the middle of a major pandemic. What are the main criteria considered in location searches for corporate headquarters? I realize it does vary a bit from project to project, but I do think you'd agree there's some key ones that come up frequently. And how are those corporate location decisions different for high-tech firms in particular? Greg, would you like to kick us off? Sure. Thank you, Stephen. And thank you for the opportunity to join the rest of my colleagues on this discussion. The main criteria that we see for headquarters are really two. The first one is labor force, particularly a labor force that has experience in the given industry sectors. And then secondly is accessibility. We gauge the accessibility to the company's operations across the United States, but also across the globe. And then customers, kind of the proximity to customers and, and how quickly can corporate executives get out and, and be with customers or have their customers visit with them. Yeah, that makes sense. Jeanette, is that similar to how you've seen things in your work? It is, but I would add there's a culture element too. A location has to make sense for a company from a culture perspective. Do we fit in with this community? What does this community project about our company to the outside world? And I'll use as an example, Nissan's headquarter relocation to Tennessee. Nissan was the very first Japanese company to have automotive plant in the southeastern United States with the plant in Smyrna. There was sort of a trailblazer. And so relocating to Tennessee and Nashville fit the image that they wanted to project to the world and to their customers. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Chris, anything you would add? I think that's quite a list to start with. Yeah, Stephen, what I would chime in on is not only culture, but not only the impact on brand position, but I think a big component around talent. Often when you look at relocating a corporate headquarters, it's not a five-year decision, it's a 50-year decision. It presents the opportunity to leapfrog competition if it's done correctly, become the employer of choice, focusing not only on retention, but also attraction of talent. And clearly now, as you alluded to on the front end, be it the changing demographics that we were chatting about before COVID reared its head and kind of took over everything that we talk about, but clearly there are not only changing demographics, but also changes to the working styles and the ways in which people will return to the office in the near and the immediate future. And I think the reality is all of the things that you know, my peers have mentioned presents an executive team with a kind of cornucopia of criteria in which to really figure out how do we go to bed knowing that we're going to lift and shift something, make a significant capital investment, especially in assets, and rest easy knowing it was the right decision. And I think everything you just heard here is a big, big mix of the ingredients that go into these decisions. Those are things that seem to be pretty consistent across those headquarters searches, and then there's often a couple of X factors depending on the company. As you think about headquarters location decisions specifically, what do you see as the major trends that will affect company operations over the next few years, or for that matter, even what have you seen you know, as a shift over the last several years coming out of the pandemic? What might 
shift in that respect about how companies might think about headquarters location decisions. There's a couple of big trends that come to mind for me. One is in the built environment itself. As companies begin to look for new headquarter locations, oftentimes that means building a new building or building a new facility for their headquarters. When they start to do that design work and that construction work, there's a couple of big trends that emerge. One is ride sharing and autonomous vehicles. Companies are not building as much parking as maybe they would have 10 or 15 years ago because they know that this trend is coming and that people aren't going to own cars and park their cars when they come to work. The other trend that I'm seeing is towards more flexible space that can be used for multiple purposes. Things can be shifted to fit different space requirements, be shifted easily. The other trend that I am seeing, which is not related to the built environment, is around the amenities that a community has to offer. We have to remember that headquarter relocation projects are intensely personal because it typically involves the relocation of a large number of employees. And so it becomes a very personal issue. As millennials and Gen Zers are becoming a part of the workforce, what they desire in a community and what they desire in terms of quality of life is shifting companies' focus away from, say, healthcare and education. Those things are still important, of course, but more towards some other quality of life amenities like outdoor recreation and downtown developments and things like that. The demographics of the country are changing and the workforce is changing. You know, components like health and wellness are on the forefront as the world becomes flatter from an accessibility standpoint. How does the current location versus a new location or multiple new locations play into what we're really trying to offer the folks that come work here every single day? I think coming out of 2020, similar to how we came out of 2009, there will be a return to cost at the corporate level, the decision-making level, but we're hearing a lot of our clients kind of circle that cost of living bucket and say, the way we're looking at cost is the impact to our employees, the ability to own a home or rent a home or commute and live, work, and play in a community. And I think we'll revisit some corporate decision-making that brings the employee back into the front and center, and also continuing to look at all the lessons learned, Stephen, coming out of the last 12 months with the coronavirus and how pouring capital into, say, existing aging assets that you have on your books today, you know, what's the return on investment there in conjunction with these shifting work styles and what employees are demanding and looking for? To put a bow around it, it's a big, long look at how you can keep the folks that are coming to work every day, you know, happy, healthy, and content with their job. One element that we're seeing emerge, though, from the C-suite is risk mitigation and concern over business interruptions. And so, you know, we talked about the pandemic, but we're also hearing in concern about these urban cores, about civil unrest and, and kind of the impact that some of these either governors or mayoral executive orders are having in response to both the pandemic and these other civil unrest incidents that's impacting business. If you're in an urban core and your headquarters team is in an elevator and commuting through a congested lobby, there's some real practical considerations about having your colleagues actually be able to get to the office safely. So we're seeing a lot of discussion around risk minimization, particularly as it relates to urban cores. It's bringing more rural and suburban locations into play 
Whereas I think over the last decade, we've kind of seen, you know, this shift to the urban core. We're now starting to, you know, have some emerging discussions about maybe reversing that or having a smaller team in the urban setting and pushing a much larger team out to the suburbs or to more rural locations. Obviously, we've seen a sea change in the extent of remote work in the country in the wake of social distancing requirements associated with the pandemic, especially early on. How do you think that will affect the future of corporate headquarters locations? What kinds of locations do you think would benefit or could benefit from a trend toward more hybrid or fully remote jobs? I think if looking into a crystal ball, if we all had a crystal ball, I think we'd be able to answer this very easily. I think the reality is the pandemic, while it feels like it's been a long time, this is a pretty short window in which to look at, and it's greatly impacted the corporate office landscape across the U.S. and frankly across the world. If you look at the employee surveys that are coming back regarding remote work, there are large swaths of the working population who at least report currently that they enjoy the increased flexibility, not having to commute to major urban cores. It costs money. It costs money to eat. It costs money to park. It costs money to take the train. You might spend 20 minutes. You might spend an hour every which way commuting to and from the office. And the one thing that we all have is 24 hours in a day. And one of the most valuable things is getting time back and being more efficient with it. And I think there is a quotient of the C-suite that looks at the ability to get more time and more efficiency out of people. That's something that's been really favorable from a team and a collaboration standpoint. While we've all done a really great job leveraging the tools that we have to work remote, it simply will never replace face-to-face human interaction. So what does that really mean? I think what you're seeing right now is a lot of kicking the can down the road on office-related projects, right? A lot of short-term renewals. If you remove COVID, there would probably be a couple more larger HQ projects that are hitting the news. And I think there's a lot of folks sitting on the sideline right now to really understand, you know, what this is going to look like going forward. I wish I could give you a straight answer on what I think is going to happen. I think what I know is going to happen is that the big office users in the marketplace are looking at this really, really closely right now and trying to understand how workplace strategy plays into a return to the office for those companies that intend to continue to go back to something that looked like their footprint pre-2020. I think it'll be a couple more years until we really get this thing evened out. But my belief is that remote work is not here to stay. I think flexibility may be here to stay, but I think you'll see as a vaccine rolls out and people become a little bit more comfortable with really how this has shaped the world, I do believe that I'll be back in our respective offices working again together. The headquarters projects that we're working right now, we've been working them, you know, before the pandemic and a couple have cropped up since the pandemic. And the projects are getting smaller. So the executive teams are trying to determine what is a core leadership that's required to be together kind of on a consistent basis. And then having a much more distributed model with the supporting functions in the organization. And that distributed model may be pushing, you know, those back office operations to mid-sized metro areas and or allowing those colleagues to work remotely. And then the model at the kind of the back office is is much more flexibility. And the office model is going to change a little bit because before we had these big open spaces, we went to that model in our headquarters as well. And now it seems like the trend is to redesign those specific offices to have more personal space, dedicated space. 
You'll have much smaller dedicated offices and these isolated open areas that would allow for team collaboration, but also easy changeover from one meeting to another to allow appropriate hygiene and sanitation. The discussions we're having so far from executives have been much smaller core HQs with the extended enterprise for the back office operation. The debate that we're hearing right now from a lot of our clients is, do they include R&D, the intellectual heart of the company? It depends a lot on the corporate strategy. But for those companies that that pride themselves on innovation, certainly their R&D colleagues, they consider them to be a core part of the leadership team. We are going to go back to work in an office. I think that there have been productivity losses and lack of social interaction really takes a toll. I also agree with Greg that how we go back to an office is going to look different. Some companies during the pandemic have adopted a rotating schedule so that only a certain number of people are in the building on any given day. Maybe that stays. The built space is going to change dramatically to allow for the flexibility that is needed to accommodate both personal offices as well as larger collaborative space, but in a much smaller footprint. One of the most interesting things to me as we transition from pandemic to post-pandemic is going to be to see, you know, how much really is permanent change or permanent, let's say, increase in remote work versus more of a, what I sort of call hybrid, where someone is connected to a physical office, but perhaps they're not at the office quite as often as they have been in the past. Kind of a related question to that, one of the things that the Brookings Institution and others have written about in recent years is just how economic growth, there's a lot of conversation obviously this year about diversity, equity and inclusion and economic gaps, you know, across the population. But one of the other things that's also talked about perhaps a bit less, but still out there is differences in how economic growth flows across geographies, right? Where you have, in general, the last decade or so, the big metros have done the best, the mid-sized metros second to that, and on down to the smaller rural regions, where in general, the larger the region, the stronger the employment growth has been. Are smaller metros on your client's radar when they're initially thinking about where a project might fit, a corporate headquarters project. What can those smaller metros do to attract more corporate headquarters projects? For smaller metro areas to be competitive, it's all about accessibility. What connectivity does that community have? The second aspect is what sort of ICT infrastructure is there? Do they have 5G? Do they have fiber extended throughout the community? The connectivity is really, really important for smaller communities. If you take a look at the growth over the course of the last 12 to 18 months, I'm amazed at the number of smaller metro areas that are essentially vacation markets. Take a look at the growth in Traverse City, Michigan, you know, in Northwest Michigan. I think it's approaching almost 20% growth with permanent residents moving in. Same thing down in Texas and some of the communities surrounding Austin. Go back to your old neck of the woods in New Orleans and some of the surrounding parishes down there. That might be as a result of what we we were just discussing about the remote workforce. They've sort of moved out of the urban and the near suburb locations and kind of reached for more space. And so they're moving to these vacation markets where there's definitely more space and maybe some of the restrictions, social distancing restrictions are a little bit more lax than what they're finding in those urban cores. But that's where I'm seeing a lot of growth, particularly here in the Midwest. When you're talking about an HQ Relo, no project is identical to the other. And clearly, if you're talking about a Fortune 10 company versus, say, uh, someone in an outside 
outside the Fortune 1000, you know, the considerations might vary differently to Greg's point about access, air access, infrastructure, movement around the country, considerations on how many people are you talking about. Think about the Amazon project that you guys have in Northern Virginia. You know, that project fits into your Virginia story very well versus some other places in the country that just couldn't accommodate that type of growth. I think the reality is if you look at the continued success that the Dallas-Fort Worth market has had, particularly recruiting companies out of California, I don't think that is going to stop. What you might see there, as an example, Stephen, is companies looking in and around the Metroplex at Dallas may start to look at some of those collar counties, right, outside of the core Dallas Metro, for example, but similar to what has happened in Plano. If you take Chicago, where I live, which Chicago struggles from national perception issues, be it cost, be it politics, be it weather, be it whatever other aspects there may be, what you do see is just a glut of companies that have spent the last decade moving their headquarters to downtown Chicago, and that is all about talent. Now, there are other companies, as Greg pointed out, that have looked into the suburban market, be it his parish example or the Traverse City example, but also to the greater suburban community, the Oak Brook, the Schaumburg, the Hoffman Estates in the greater Chicago market. I think a smaller community can compete just like a big community can for a headquarters project. It just has to be the right type of project. You're not going to have a company likely move 5,000 jobs into a market where you'd automatically be the big fish in a medium-sized pond, but then your competition for talent and your ability to attract it is slightly hindered just based on the size of the community. I think there are a lot of high-value markets out there that are outside of the tier one big cities that are very promising places for corporations to relocate to. And at the end of the day, it's going to come down to the scope and criteria that the company is considering when relocating their headquarters. If a company is of a size that might consider a smaller community or a rural area, they're going to look for those areas that fit their company culture. So what communities need to be focusing on, if that is their goal, is placemaking. What can they do to make their community stand out? What can they do to make sure that they have the amenities that are going to be important to these companies? Is that more green space? Is that biking trails? Is that a vibrant downtown? Certain types of housing, taking care of those traditional community development activities that are going to make their community stand out to a company that's looking to relocate to their corporate headquarters. There's a study from Michigan State University going back to 2009 that's probably the seminal study in placemaking. If a community is looking to be competitive, whether it's a smaller community or a larger community, public amenities are tremendously important. There's actually a rate of return projected with a formula for certain investments investments in these public amenities will yield X number of dollars of increase in per capita income, and it's been pretty accurate. Is there anything else we did not hit on in terms of things that states and regions can do to better position themselves as an attractive location for corporate headquarters? We're active with a corporate headquarters project right now, and one of the things that have frustrated me is the ability to understand the talent pipeline. Specifically, if my client is looking for a specific skill set and we want to know how many people in XYZ major graduate from the major universities and college in a certain region, 
how many of those people stay in the region and have jobs, how many of those people are leaving the region, those data points help us understand what that talent pipeline is going to look like. And a lot of places haven't really mastered that yet, whether it's difficult to work with their local universities or an unwillingness to do it. That piece of data is very important and very hard to get. Collaboration with higher education is really key for these types of projects. Some states and sophisticated regional groups have done a really good job of paving the way to help companies put together a structured partnership around talent. I also think that in conjunction with that, diversity inclusion strategies and goals are continuing to grow within the executive leadership focus at many companies. Sustainability goals that are being driven and mandated by a lot of companies, communities and states that can help bridge that discussion and and make that, especially for publicly traded companies, help them ensure that those goals are something that they can meet based on their location. I think air transport will continue to be something that folks really depend on. There's some great stories out there. Cities that have been able to get one of the larger air carriers to really increase their gate capacity in the airport. That is viewed and looked at very favorably, especially when you get outside of probably top five airports that we can all rattle off as companies look to figure out how are we still going to be able to get around the country and get around the globe if we pick up and move from our existing location? As you think about the Commonwealth of Virginia, what are the qualities that really help Virginia stand out as a location for corporate headquarters? First thing that comes to mind with Virginia for headquarters projects is just a number of bachelor and postgraduate degrees that the population has. The educational attainment is the highest in the country. For headquarters also, it's the location quotients for management executives and then also for professional and the scientific and engineering community. I think the location quotient for management is like 1.2. So it's, you know, it's almost 20% higher than the national average. Whereas for professional, technical, and engineering executives, I think it's like 1.6 or 1.7. So those both stand out, not only just from the sheer concentration, but also the growth in those two sectors. You're averaging almost a 2% growth rate over a five-year period for both of those occupations. And then you balance that with the wages, the average annual wage across the Commonwealth for managerial jobs is about $125,000 a year, which is lower than the national average, which is about $127,000, $128,000 a year. Now, the professional and technical and engineering executives are a little bit higher. I think they come in at about $105,000 a year versus, you know, kind of a national average of $99,000 a year. But when you consider the concentration, the education attainment versus the cost of what you're getting, I think Virginia is a very, very competitive location for headquarters. The number one asset is the talent and the talent pipeline. Again, Again, in addition to the existing base of talent that you have, your universities and colleges are churning out excellent individuals in a multiple kind of array of occupations. And I think that is definitely part of your talent advantage. Part of Virginia's competitiveness in this area is your connectivity. If you include Baltimore, which I know is not in the Commonwealth, but you have access to three airports that can get you almost anywhere in the world. There's just a lot of connectivity that you offer to corporate headquarters for whom air travel is important. The talent in the workforce is key. I think, Stephen, you and the team have a proof point with, I believe at last count, over 30 of the Fortune 1000 companies, 35 of the Fortune 1000 headquarters in Virginia. It is about pipeline development 
and you've got three of the country's top universities sitting in Virginia. And I think the other thing is from a geographic standpoint, within the state, you have three or four very distinct regions. It's not just Northern Virginia. The ability for a company to, I think, place make in different corners of the state and still have access to the infrastructure and the talent and the connectivity. But I'd close with, it's a growing state. You have growing markets. That is very, very attractive. And when you put all this together, as the three of us have said, it clearly puts itself in the position to be at the table for a lot of these big discussions. Did the Amazon HQ2 win do anything to change the perceptions of Virginia as a location for corporate headquarters projects? One of the things that I think was done well is to brand that location as Northern Virginia as opposed to Washington, D.C. That allowed you to bill it as a Virginia win and distinguish that from D.C. as the major metropolitan area. One of the things a lot of folks don't realize is that Northern Virginia is by far the largest source of headquarters and in particular tech talent in that region. Mm -hmm. The whole region's strong, but the Northern Virginia part is the biggest part of it. And that's one of the reasons why a strong majority of all the headquarters in the region are in Northern Virginia. And we think that's been a combination of both the talent concentration and the business climate that Virginia offers. Amazon helped you tell that story broadly and loudly. That makes sense to you as a resident, makes sense to the three of us on the phone because we're in the location geography business. But to the rest of the world, that's a concept that I think was really underscored with the Amazon decision. One of the phrases that was not uttered a lot nationally before that win was the phrase Northern Virginia as a distinct geography really changed almost overnight that people started saying that. I believe in the Virginia Economic Review, right? You guys called it the big reveal. Jeanette nailed it, right? The Whether it was conscientious or not, the kind of Northern Virginia tagline, I think is really huge. I would tell you, or to answer your question on what is the impact of that HQ2 project, I think it cements what we've all talked about for the last hour, which is placemaking matters, but it helps define I think what is commonly talked about when we're all doing our jobs and our clients are in the boardrooms that you know cost is always a consideration, but labor and tech talent and the new breed of working and changing, growing millennial talent and those that really want to be in these vibrant areas that I think the Amazon project squarely cemented that region and that part of the Commonwealth as a kind of no-brainer. When it was all revealed, there were many for months that had said that the, quote, greater D.C. metro would be in the mix. The fact that that lands kind of in in the Arlington backyard really gives you a new stack of chips to go out there and say, we were able to locate this. We've been able to support it. It has been growing like a weed with really great success. And it's not all about cost. Cost matters, but so does talent and so does finding a location to make a 50-year decision. And, And clearly Amazon found that in Northern Virginia. Well, I think the Amazon decision confirmed what we've been saying today about the Commonwealth and certainly about Northern Virginia. The couple challenges, though, that it poses for you now for other 
headquarters projects because it's such a large project is you currently have a housing and rental market vacancy rate that's lower than the national average. You also have unemployment rates that, you know, if you just eliminate the distortion from what's happened in, in 2020 right, right. that are lower than the national average. So I think the challenge for the Commonwealth in Northern Virginia is going to be how quickly can you fill the talent pipeline that we were just talking about? That's the number one challenge. Going all the way out to Charlottesville and down to Richmond, you certainly have the communities that have the capability to retain and attract that workforce. You're in an enviable position with the universities in the Commonwealth and the D.C. area to attract those graduates to stay in the area. So I think it's just reaffirming of everything that the Commonwealth has been doing over the last decade. But also, I think it presents a big challenge for y'all. But you certainly have the resources to, to meet that challenge and, and to attract others to the community. But a lot of people didn't realize is that we're the largest and, and continue to be the largest producer of tech talent, particularly focused on computer science in the D.C. metro compared to any other place in the country. A lot of that talent was leaving each year, partly because while many, many folks are interested in federal government-related opportunities, either directly or indirectly through contractors. And that's really been the historic base of much of our tech sector there. We were losing a lot of folks that were going to the West Coast that wanted to work for companies like Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, etc. And one of the coolest things that has happened since then is we're seeing more and more of those more private sector leading tech companies follow on after the HQ2 announcement and either open or dramatically expand their presence in the region. And we think ultimately that will make it both a better opportunity to retain the new talent that we're producing, but also a more attractive market to bring in talent from elsewhere. I just want to thank you guys so much for making the time today. This was an incredibly insightful conversation. We especially appreciate the long relationship we've had in the Commonwealth of Virginia and me personally as well with each of you. Thank you, Stephen. This podcast has been brought to you by the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Thanks for listening.